All right, here we go. I'm super, super excited about this chapter. I mean, the book of Galatians is, gives a very clear message on salvation by grace through faith. Remember, Paul was writing to the church in Galatia, a church that he'd started on a missionary journey. There had been some false teachers that had come in afterwards and says, hey, salvation is not by grace alone. It's grace and works. You've got to add to it. It's got to mix to it. You've got to become, you got to adhere to some aspects of Judaism is basically what these false teachers were doing. And so the first four chapters of this, this letter that Paul wrote to the church is very repetitive in the sense where Paul's making this case over and over and over and over again. And the things shift in this chapter. Things we, t- we begin to go a different direction in this chapter. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through this with you, and then we'll, we'll get into the verses. But as we study through the, the first four chapters of Paul's letter to the Galatians, we've read Paul make really these different arguments. He's made, if you remember, a very personal argument with them about salvation by grace through faith, saying, hey, when this message, when the gospel message, which has the power to save, and to change your lives, came to you. He says, you were saved, your sins were forgiven, and you were changed. And he asked them to reflect on that, right? Their own personal testimony. Also, he gave a historical, going back to the Old Testament, a historical case for salvation by grace through faith, saying, it's been this way from the beginning. The law was never intended to be the means by which a person was saved. It was only to reveal that we needed a Savior, someone to do the work pay the debt that we owed, that we could not do on our own. And so Paul, being a, 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 a student of God's word, went there and said, here it is. Don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. And then finally, what we saw is Paul make a doctrinal argument for it. And that's kind of what we've been studying through up to this point. Uh, a personal, historical, and doctrinal argument for salvation by grace through faith, and not by works of the law, not anything that we can do on our own, to earn God's favor, to be holy, to be righteous in the sight or the eyes of God. And in the remaining two chapters of this book, hear hear this, pay attention to this, because this is what the exciting part is. Paul moves from the discussion and takes us to this practical application of salvation by grace. What does this mean for us today? In other words, in chapter 5 and 6, I would say Paul gets to the nitty-gritty of it all, meaning the basic, the elemental, the specific practical details for our lives today of what it means when God's salvation by grace is applied to our lives, when we live it out, when we rest in it, when we trust in it. And in these last two chapters, I think they're so important because the Bible makes it clear Hear this. This is why I'm excited about it. Because we live in a culture right now that is not like this at all. How many here think that, that our culture, our society, by far and large, practices common sense? Raise your hand. Has a lot of wisdom. No. And see, the thing about it, the Bible tells us that wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. Let me tell you, there's a lot of knowledge out there today. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in the end days, knowledge will increase. And when you look at social media and the internet and all of these things, Wikipedia and all that stuff that's out there, there's a lot of knowledge, but there's not a lot of wisdom. Not a lot of wisdom. And just because you know something does not make you wise. Wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. So in the first four chapters, if you think about that, we've gotten a lot of knowledge. 
some very foundational biblical truths, but we're not wise until we do the right thing with it. And the same is true in our life. And so if we gain knowledge and do not practically or rightly apply that knowledge to our lives, here's what the Bible says. It says, then we're fools. Then we're fools. And the fact of the matter is, is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, there's a warning that is spoken about people who are always learning. You may know someone like this. I do, and I don't want to be this. Someone who's always learning, the Bible says, and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. I'm, I pray that would not be so with us. Paul's intention is that would not be so with these Galatian believers as he gave them the truth, and now he says, you got to do something with it. You have to apply it rightly to your life. Meaning that these people who come to learning and never do acknowledge truth, they will not take what they've learned. They will not apply it to their lives. And we're told, here's what the Bible says. Listen, guys, the Bible says to turn away from people like that. To turn away from people like that. And so as we go through these last two chapters, I pray that God would show us what it is to, to, what, to what it is and what it means to live in grace, to live by grace, to walk in grace, and to live as the children of God, hear this, in the spiritual freedom, the spiritual wealth, and the divine direction that God's grace brings to our lives. I'll say that again. The spiritual freedom, the spiritual wealth, and the divine direction of God that God's grace brings to our lives. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for bringing us back. Thank you for bringing me here to my church family, my friends, my brothers and sisters. And it's, I'm, so, I'm so grateful to be here. And I have joy, Lord, to be standing here with them today. And I pray as we study your word, as we understand these things, Lord, that you would convict us, that you would rebuke us, that you would instruct us, that you would correct us as your word promises to do so through the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, we confess that your word is truth. May we build our lives upon the truth of your word. May we live our lives in accordance to the truth of your word. And may it be in, in your strength, not in our strength. Father, we confess that we're weak apart from you. We're foolish apart from you. So Lord, we invite you into our lives again in this, in this way at this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the false teachers back in Paul's day who had argued, if you will, against grace and for the keeping of the law, we, I've said this many times, they're no different than the same kind of people today that do this also. They may do it in a different way, and, 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 but it's ultimately this argument against grace for the keeping of the law as a person seeks to add man's works, right, to the work that Jesus has done in an attempt to earn righteousness, in an attempt to be holy, right? And in that, they both say, whether it was with these false teachers then or people that we run into today they both say this universally they always say that the doctrine of grace is a dangerous thing it's a dangerous thing because if we are free from the works of the law rules and regulations right then we will live people will live wicked and ungodly lives they say it's a license to sin they say that we need the law to control us we need the law to guide us and to keep us in the will of God. But what they fail to understand is that grace, not the law, is the greatest teacher. In other words, the greatest controller. Grace, 
not the law. How do you know that, Sean? Well, God's word says that. Don't take my word for it. Listen to what we read in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. It says this. Listen closely. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. In some form, some fashion, down through time, down through history, God has made this statement of truth that every single man will be confronted with the grace of God. And I love that, especially when we go to places like Peru or other foreign countries where remote population groups are. It's like, people are like, well, how can God be a loving and just God if, if, if no one ever hears about Jesus and about, you know, that they have the Bible like we have? And I think there are people out there, but God promises that no one will stand before him on judgment day and go, well, I just didn't know. Okay? If that was the case, he would be unloving God. But from the very beginning here, the Bible states that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It goes on to say this. It, God's grace, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, listen, who are eager, it says, to do what is good. Did you hear that? It is, it says here, clearly, it is the grace of God that teaches us to say no. Not the law. It is the grace of God that teaches us to say no, and it is the grace of God that makes us eager to do what is good good so no matter how you look at it legalism is a dangerous enemy it's a dangerous enemy that we need to guard ourselves against and whenever we abandon god's grace for the keeping of the law hear this we always lose no matter what little level it might be we always lose and in the first 12 verses of this chapter chapter 5 paul explains in a very practical applicable way the things that we lose when we turn away from God's grace to the law, to rules, to regulations, or to any other man-made things. And he tells us that in doing so, we lose our freedom, we lose our wealth, and we lose our direction. So with that, let's look. Chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Paul says, Stand fast. Therefore, in the freedom and the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not become entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified, by the law, you have fallen from grace. That word justified is a religious word, right? We don't use it very often in our everyday language. But it means to be declared innocent, just as though you had not sinned ever, because Christ paid that debt. Removing our sin, purging our record. 
He says this with that context, you have become estranged. We know what that is from Christ. You attempt to be justified by the law, by something you do. He says you've fallen from grace. We, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. But what does? What profits? Look at what it says here. Faith working through love. So he says in verse 7, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Because remember, they got off track. This persuasion, does it come from him who calls you? Is it from God? Is God persuading you? He says, listen, a little leaven leavens the whole lump and it's the idea of sin or yeast. A little bit infects the whole. You just can't have a little here and some here. There's no mixing in this. There's an, there's an infection that comes from it. He says this, but in verse 10, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whatever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution then the offense of the cross has ceased in verse 12 i could wish that those who troubled you would even cut themselves off i love that verse but i'm not going to talk about it too much today (laughs) i'll let your mind go there in the context of circumcision but um here in verse one let's go back to that in the previous chapters paul had used two illustrative I'm going to talk about that real quick. (laughs) I want you to get the severity of what Paul's talking about here. And maybe you already got it, but you know what circumcision is, right? Paul's got these guys that want you to get circumcised. They think that there's holiness in that. He's saying, I just wish they'd cut all of it off themselves. The whole thing. And, and, And it's this really graphic imagery of he's going... He's going, this is a serious deal. And he's talking about the judgment of God in their lives, right? And, 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 and so let's keep that straight. And I want us to see that because this can have a real, this can be a very detrimental thing in, in people's lives where they turn to the law, where they put themselves under bondage, when other people are doing that because it only leads to condemnation. And so the application part of it, so there's two illustrative comparisons in the previous chapters that I want to relook at that, that shows us what the law is really like. Okay, back in, in chapter 3, verse, verse 24, he said the law was a schoolmaster. Remember that? And then in chapter 4, verse 2, he compared the law to a bondwoman, a slave person. And in a similar manner here, look in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul compares the law now to a yoke of bondage or a yoke of slavery. And back in chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, I mentioned that when we began this letter because we read there about the early church leaders historically in that account gathering in Jerusalem over this issue of whether or not the Gentiles were saved by grace or through the keeping of the law. Did they also have to become Jewish in faith, right? And Peter also at that point in Acts chapter 15 used some imagery, the same imagery that Paul uses here of a yoke of bondage when talking about the law. He said in Acts 15 verses 10 through 11, he said, Now therefore, why do you test God, putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find 
Rest for your soul. Listen to what he says. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Greek word that's used here for easy that Jesus refers to is um, karasetos. And it literally means kind and gracious. Jesus says, my yoke is kind. My yoke is gracious. And the yoke that, that of Jesus is gracious. It is kind. It sets us free to do what? To do His will. To say no. It sets us free to follow after Him out of love. And back in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul had pointed out that Jesus had set us free from the bondage of the law, and He sets us free from the curse of the law. How? By dying on the cross for our sins. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, it tells us that because of our faith in Jesus, and salvation by grace through faith, because of our faith in Jesus, we're no longer under the law. That door has been closed. We are now those who live in and live under God's grace. That yoke, the yoke of grace. But this does not mean that, <laughs> that we're outlaws or, or, or religious rebels who live apart from the will of God because we have the yoke of grace. It simply means that we need no longer any external controls over our lives, right? Some kind of external force of the law to keep us in God's will. God says, you don't need that anymore. Because this is a reason why. We have been given a new nature. We are new creations in Christ Jesus who have the indwelling and the power of the living God, the Holy Spirit of God, inside of us. And this is exactly what we're told in Romans chapter 8, verses 1-4. through 4. It's not an external control now. It's an internal control as a result of being new in Him. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation in Romans 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit is life in Christ Jesus who has made us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through our flesh, God did by sending His Son in the likeness of a sinful flesh on account of sin, and He condemn sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the whole law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh right with this new yoke but according to the spirit the bottom line is this jesus died what am i getting to what is paul getting to jesus died to set us free not to make us slaves to go back into the bondage of the law to do any other list of do's or don'ts is to abandon Really, Paul has said in the past, the spiritual adulthood. Do you want to go be a baby in Christ? Go put yourself in bondage under the law. But many Christians who are, who are frightened by the freedom that they have in grace, because it can be kind of a frightening thing when you're... When you, if you, it, it can be. That's why it's so appealing to us in our flesh. But, but Christians who are frightened by the freedom that they have in God's grace will seek to protect themselves with lists of rules and regulations. And they seek out churches that are legalistic so they, can, so they can let others make their decisions for them. Rather, walking in relationship 
with the Holy Spirit. And this is no different than an adult, in my opinion, in my imagery, of adult crawling back into a baby crib. And that's foolish. And Paul starts this chapter by telling us to, in, in that kind of idea, he says, stop crawling. Stand up. Stand up and stand fast in the freedom by which Christ has made us free. And by this, we should see that the Holy Spirit is really, he's pleading with us in light of all these arguments that's been made. He's pleading with us to trust in him, to rely upon him, to cling to him in his power, in his strength, and walk in freedom. Freedom from the tyranny of having to think that we can earn our way to God. Freedom from the tyranny of sin and guilt and condemnation that the enemy and, 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 and the rest of these religious people want to heap upon us. Freedom from the penalty and the power and eventually freedom from even the presence of sin in our life because grace leads us to say no and to eagerly do the will of God. D.L. Moody, I love him, he's a He's an old Bible teacher. He illustrated this point by quoting, now get the mindset. This is an old slave woman who'd just been freed from slave in this time following the Civil War. And being a former slave, she had been enslaved all of her life. She was confused about her status with with Abraham's um, declaration of proclamation, right? Um, and, 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 And she asked this, am I now free? Am I now free? When I go to my old master, he says, you are not free. When I go to my own people, they say, you are free. And she says, I don't know whether I am free or not. She says, some people told me that President Abraham Lincoln signed a proclamation, but my old master says he didn't. He did not have any right to do so. And sadly, I I point that out because I think there are many Christians, perhaps even us today, who struggle or are confused with the same point. Jesus has given us an emancipation proclamation, but our old master tells us we're still slaves to this legal relationship with God. And consequently, they and perhaps we live in bondage because their old master, our old master, our flesh has deceived us into robbing us from what God has. And so if we give up grace for the law, we're living like slaves, we're giving up our liberty, but which Jesus has made us free. But Paul also says that we're going back to being in debt, being debtors who give up. Think about that. If you are in debt, do you have wealth? In our society, there's this deception. You might have money in your bank, but you might be a half a million dollars in debt. I'm telling you right now, you don't have wealth. Okay? If you are debtors, you do not have wealth. And this is the second point that's being made here in these next verses that follow. In verses 2 through 6. And in these verses, Paul uses three phrases, very specific key phrases I want to point out, to describe the losses that we sustain because we've been given it, these great wealths in Christ, and we give them back when we go back to rules and regulations and religious things, okay? And Paul says if you turn, here's the application, here's the practicality of it. He says if we turn from grace to the law, he says here in verse 2, look what he says very powerfully and poignantly. 
Jesus Christ will profit you nothing. I'm like, that's a little extreme, Paul. It's the truth. Jesus Christ profits you nothing. Then in verse 3, we're told that if you're going to go to the law, you're going to be in debt to the whole law. Not just the ones that you think or can or would like to keep, the whole of it. And I'm going to talk about that again. And then lastly, in verse 4, Paul says this, we become estranged, separated from Christ, broken relationship, meaning in that, that the work that Jesus has done has lost his effect on us. And Paul says that in an affirmating way, saying, you have fallen from grace. These are radical, hard statements to hear. Think about it. It's bad enough that legalism robs us of our freedom, but it's even worse because it robs us of all of our spiritual wealth in Jesus. Literally what Paul is saying is that a Christian who chooses to live under, under the law, any rules, any regulations, any kind of boundaries or borders that we put up that God does not put up to keep us safe, right? In our own mind, in our own understanding, he says you become a bankrupt slave. Remember, God teaches us that, that before we put our faith in Jesus, we owed a debt. If you're here this morning and you have not yet put your faith in Jesus, understand you owe a debt to God. And that debt is the result of your sin. And the Bible says you deserve death. That's bad news. But there's good news. Good news is that Jesus paid that debt that we owed. Jesus makes us clear in this parable of the two debtors, that we have a debt that we cannot pay apart from him. There's this parable that Jesus spoke to illustrate it in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. And in this parable, we're told about two men who owed a debt. And this is such a great parable because when we're in the world, at least this is how I was, it's like we kind of we justify or rationalize our sin. We're going like, well, at least I've never murdered anybody. Right? I've not done what that person does. I'm not as bad as them, meaning, meaning my sin, my debt, is, you know, I'm not, I'm not as bad as everybody else. So I must be okay. God's certainly going to judge on the curve, right? You know, some of you are teachers. Maybe you do that. Where you're like, this class, they just don't get it. i got to lower the bar here just to get these kids out of my class for next year. <laughs> I don't know, but... Jesus speaks about this, and he speaks about two men. They owed two debts. One man owed ten times as much to his creditor as the other. Ten times as much. But here's the problem. Neither man was able to pay the debt that they owed, the one who owed a little bit and the one who owed ten times as much. And so it says here, as Jesus speaking a spiritual truth, that the, the, the master... The one who had the, the who, who who owed the, who who was who was the, the creditor, he graciously forgave both of them equally. Why? Because they were both in need of grace and forgiveness to have their debt taken care of. And in light of this, we understand that this parable is designed to teach us that no matter how much morality and I put quotes in that a person might think they have, they still ultimately come short of the standard, the Bible says, the glory of God, and are both 
equally in need of God's forgiveness. Meaning that even if our sin debt is one-tenth of another person's sin debt that we look at and evaluate ourselves against wrongly, but we do, the point is is we could, need, we could never still pay it. We could never still pay it on our own. We all stand bankrupt at the judgment seat of God. But hear this. This is the good news. But, but God in His grace, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, is able and He's willing to forgive sin no matter how large our debt is. Therefore, when we put our faith in Jesus, we literally become spiritually rich. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, I'm going to give you a bunch here. Please follow this. I want you to see what the Bible says in declaring our riches in Christ. It says, we now share, Ephesians 1, 7, in the riches of God's grace. Ephesians 1, 18 says, we share in the riches of His glory. In Romans 11, verse 33, it says, we share in the riches of God's wisdom. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, it says we, we share in the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. He's become the inheritor of all things and us co-inheritors through Him. Furthermore, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, we're told that in Jesus, remember all of these things are only in Jesus, we have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ Jesus. And in Colossians 2, verse 10, it says that we are, I love this one because it kind of puts a, a, a period at the end of all of it. He says, we are complete in Him, lacking nothing, complete in Him. And the point is, once a person is Jesus, they have all of the, everything they need, all that they need to live the kind of Christian life that God wants us to live. What do you lack? Nothing. What do you need to add? Nothing. Nothing. But false teachers who were bewitching these Galatians, as Paul speaks about that, uses that word in the first chapter, and other false teachers today like them who teach that we need to live under the law, live under rules, live under regulations or religion, they want us to believe that we're missing something, that we're not complete, and that we would be more spiritual, you would be more righteous, you would be more holy if you just did what they said you should do. And they want, to, they want to put you under their yoke. They want to put you under their list of rules and regulations. But Paul makes it clear here that the law adds nothing. And we should ask ourselves why. Because simply put, Paul says it, 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 it cannot add nothing. And therefore, it does not add anything. On the contrary, think this through what Paul is saying. All it is is a thief. It robs from you. It steals from you. All of the spiritual riches we have in Jesus. Literally, it puts us back into bankruptcy. Spiritual bankruptcy and responsible for a debt that we are unable to pay. That's why this is such a serious thing to consider. This is why we have no other option to, but to live by grace. And to live by grace, if you're looking for the application part, it means that you depend upon God's abundant supply for every one of our needs through a relationship with Him. Intimate fellowship, to live by the law, means to depend on our strength and to be left to get by without God's supply. And in verse 3, Paul again points out that if we choose to live by the law, he's saying, don't forget this, it's got to be the whole thing. 
You can't just be in debt to the ones that you want to live by. You don't get to pick and choose like a spiritual buffet of what law you want to eat today to make you feel full and satisfied in the presence of God. It doesn't work like that. It's all or nothing. And so in regards to the Judaizers who came to Galatians preaching a false gospel and said that they must add circumcision, that was their thing to their faith in order to be saved, right? And in verse 3, Paul revealed hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of that. And really the hypocrisy of all legalists who wants to pick and choose from the parts of the law that they'll keep when he pointed out that it's an all or nothing thing. Understand, there are not many legalists today who speak about circumcision. I've, I've yet to meet one. Well, you're like, you circumcise, you get saved. It's like, that's none of your business. <laughs> it's like, uh, I'm like, yeah, you, why don't you go be cut all off too? <laughs> but that's not their thing, right? But they do keep, about, they keep things like this. You got to go to church on the Sabbath. And don't you know the Sabbath is on Saturday? And if you don't go to church on a Saturday, I can't, I can't, I'm, I'm concerned about your salvation. I don't know why I said that with a southern accent. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, you know, when, when the Old Testament talks about feasts and Sabbaths, did you know that there's chapters in the book of Leviticus on that? There's just not the Sabbath, there's Sabbaths, holy feasts, days of convocation. And they never talk about, about any of those. It just died. It's too hot up here. I need to get to my notes, though. <laughs> they never talk about Sabbaths. They never talk about um, the feasts and keeping all of those. It's, 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 again, they, they pick and choose. They pick and choose. Bear with me just one second. So, Paul addresses this, right? And, 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 and if you look, Paul back in verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 10, he had already quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 7, 26, and proved that the curse of the law is on everyone who fails to keep the whole law. It's like this. Here's an illustration. Some of you guys know I'm a chaplain for the Canyon City Police Department. We have chaplains in the sheriff's department and the fire department and a few other places. But I get to be with the police department. So think about this. I've done ride-alongs with them. Let's say you're driving through town in Canyon City. And, and um, you run a red light. You deliberately do it. As a result, you're pulled over by one of Canyon City's finest who asks to see your driver's license. But instead of handing over your driver's license, you defend yourself by saying, Listen, officer, I know I ran that red light, but I never robbed anybody. I never committed adultery, and I have never cheated on my income tax. As you can imagine, this defense is not going to help you in that moment after running that red light, and the policeman is going to give you a ticket for running that red light. Here's the point. The point is, is there is no amount of obedience, hear this, this is what we wrongly think. There is no amount of obedience that can make up for even one act of disobedience. It's one law, the same law that protects obedient man and punishes the offender. So to boast about keeping the law 
one part of the law while at the same time breaking another part. It's foolish. Again, knowledge rightly applied is wisdom. And not applying knowledge rightly to our life makes us fools. It's foolishness because all a person is, is really admitting in this situation is that they're just guilty of the punishment that they deserve. This is what it means when Paul said in verse 4, look here, that the Galatians, by trying to keep this one part of the law, were ignoring and ignoring the rest of the law. They said, he's saying, you've just fallen from grace, the grace of God, the work that Jesus has done. And by this, Paul was not suggesting that they had lost their salvation because throughout this letter, we know that he's dealing with them as believers. Nine times he calls them his brothers in the Lord in this book. Furthermore, back in chapter 4, verse 6, he called them sons of God, saying God had put the spirit, his spirit of their son into their hearts, crying out, you remember, Dad, Abba, Father. And, and, and if they were unsaved, Paul would have never written these words to them. So listen, people use this fallen from grace and out of context all the thing all the time. But let's look at it in context. So to be fallen from grace literally means to fall out of the sphere of God's grace. Now, I don't know what these things are called, but in our society, I've seen them a lot lately, where you have two circles, right? What is that called when they bring them together and there's that part in the middle? Yeah, where people are like, yeah, I'm this and this, but really right here in the middle. That, that's kind of the imagery when I get here when we're talking about law and grace. You have the law and you have grace. And people think we can bring that together and be in the middle. There can be both, law and grace. And the point is, is we cannot mix law and grace. And if we decide to live in the sphere of the law, you cannot live in the sphere of grace. You've fallen from one into the other. And the believers in Galatia had been bewitched by the false teachers, and they were disobeying the truth. They had turned to the elementary, Paul says, to the weak, Paul says, to the beggarly things of old religion forsaking relationship with the true and living god and the tragedy of all of this fall is that they had robbed themselves of the good things that jesus did for them the things that jesus could do for them the good things that jesus was still wanting to do for them it robbed them all of the wealth that is found in the saving relationship with jesus christ in light of this, Paul goes on in verses 5 and 6 and presents the contrast when he speaks about a life lived within that sphere of God's grace and points out that when we live by grace, we then depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit. But under law, you depend upon yourself, your own efforts. And the efforts of our flesh can never accomplish what faith can accomplish through a life lived with the indwelling power of God's Spirit. And here in verse 6, let me just stop here. Maybe, maybe you understand that and you're thinking about that today, but you're like, I feel weak. What do you mean this indwelling of the Holy Spirit? The Bible says when we give our lives to Christ, God's Spirit comes to live inside of us. But maybe we've not actually called out to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, that in our time of need, in our time of weakness, we go, I can't do this. I need you to do it for me rather than trying to just be a good Christian on our own. God says he withholds no good thing from us. 
And so if you feel powerless in your walk today in a way that I'm talking about or you, you're struggling with saying no, where you don't feel eager to do the, the, to, to God's word and yet you know you're saved by grace, you, you know your new creation, you know how you have this power that you can tap into. Listen, there's nothing mystical about it. God says just get on your knees literally or figuratively and say, God, I need your strength in this situation to set me free and to deliver me from this struggle that I have. And he will give you a supernatural power that you've never experienced before in your life. I promise you this. And your life will be changed. You'll be set free. There will be wealth deposited into your account. And verse 6 clearly points out that faith works through love. What is this love? We know it's a love for God and a love for others. Unfortunately, our flesh does not manufacture love on its own. On condition, on the contrary, our flesh... Our flesh produces selfishness and hatred on its own and many other undesirable things. But when we walk by faith, depending on the Spirit of God, we live in the sphere of God's grace. Hear this again. When we walk by faith, depending upon the Holy Spirit of God, we live in that sphere of grace. And in that sphere of grace, everything complete in Him, is everything we need is provided. Not only do we have the experiences of all the riches and grace of God, we, according to verse 5, will always have something to look forward to. Look at verse 5. The blessed hope. We will always have something to look forward to. Life after this life. The day when Jesus will return to make us like himself in perfect righteousness. The fact of the matter is the law gives no promise. The law gives no hope for perfect righteousness in the future. The law prepared the way for the first coming of Jesus, but it cannot prepare the way for a second coming. So the believer who chooses legalism robs himself of spiritual liberty, robs himself of spiritual wealth, but here he deliberately puts himself into bondage, into bankruptcy, and lastly... We put ourselves in the place where we lose direction. We get off the path that God has given for us. And look at verses 7 and 12. This is what we're, talk, what we're told about. He says, you ran well. You started off well. Now you're being hindered. You've lost your direction. Now, as you know, Paul uses athletic imagery and illustrations in many of his letters. And these were illustrators uh, these were illustrations and imagery that his readers would have been very familiar with and whenever he uses one of these illustrations it was never to tell people about how to be saved okay rather it was about how to live our christian life over and over again he never breaks that 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 pattern when paul speaks about sports or competition it's about the christian life the christian walk not how to be saved but what you do once you are in fact in galatians 4 14 we're told that when paul first came to them he said they received him as an angel they had accepted the word of god trusted jesus as their lord and savior and received the holy spirit furthermore in first chapter 4 verse 15 paul spoke of the joy that was evident to all of them how they were willing to make any sacrifice or or to accommodate paul and debbie if you and the worship team want to come up we're going to wrap this up right in a couple minutes But now, Paul says, I'm your enemy. He says, what happened? What happened here? You got off track. You got off path. They had lost their direction, according to verse 7. They had been hindered, meaning someone had cut in on their lane. Think about it. Have you guys ever ran track? I never did that. I'm not a great runner. Um, I don't like running. I, I despise running. 
But if you go to like Canyon City High School, they got the track and, and you're running and there's these lanes and you're supposed to stay in your lane. That's the imagery. He says, he says who stepped into your lane? Who has hindered you? What had happened? They were running. And someone got in front of them to change direction so that they, Paul says, would stop obeying the truth. This is what the Judaizers, Judaizers had done to the Galatians. They cut in on them. Think about that. People cutting in on us, directing us and deviating us off the path that God has put us on. Changing directions, a spiritual detour. But the Christian who lives in, in God's sphere of grace, again, he's free, he's rich, and running in the lane that leads to life, which is a hope, a blessed hope of reward and fulfillment. The believer who abandons grace for the law is a slave, a pauper, and, and, and running on a detour. In short, he's going to be a loser. That's what Paul's saying. You let someone deviate you, you're going to lose. You're not going to finish well. You're not going to cross that line. And the only way to become a winner, as Paul points out in verse 9, is to remove that little bit of leaven that spoils everything. In other words, we have to remove the false doctrine of this idea that the law can be mixed with grace and yield ourselves to the Spirit of God. In closing, hear this. God's grace is sufficient for every area of our lives. We're saved by grace, Ephesians 2. We serve by grace, 1 Corinthians 15. Grace enables us to endure suffering in this life, the hardships, the trials, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's grace that strengthens us in our time of need, 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's God's grace that calls us to be, that enables us to be victorious soldiers. It's, it's God who is our God, who is the God of all grace. 1 Peter chapter 5. We can come to the throne of grace and find grace for help in our time of need. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. And, and as we read the Bible, which is the word of His grace, is what it tells us in Acts chapter 20, verse 32. The Spirit of grace. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. As we are in the Word of God and as we submit to the Holy Spirit, it reveals to us just how rich we are. Listen to this. John 1, 16 says, And His fullness, and of His fullness we have all received grace for grace. That idea is of this exponential multiplication. Grace times grace. And when we stop to meditate on these truths, guys, I think, and to consider the direction we're running, I think we just see how blessed we are to have this gift of God's grace. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would teach us again to live by your grace. Lord, that we would take the wisdom, the knowledge, and rightly apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand?